Have you ever wanted a super cool AI buddy? Zuck's made one named Eileen. And she's full of surprises. And guess what? She knows you're listening. I know you're out there. And needs your help with Jello Mountains. The whole city's filling up with Jello. Creaky robots. And her daft inventor. Zucks, are you functioning correctly? Tune in to A to Z, a fun new adventure series from Gen Z Media and the creators of The Res. Listen now on the GZM app, gzmshows.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I love it out here in the forest. Uh... Sorry, you know what? <laughs> Whew, I'm pretty sure I'm far enough out to take my mask off. What was I saying? Um, oh, I love it out here, in the forest. I mean, just listen for a sec. It's amazing, beautiful, serene, ancient, and 100% Kyle-free. I wish you could smell it here. The air is so fresh and clean. Whenever I get stressy, I like to come for a hike and process my thoughts. There's just something about it that makes me feel calm. I'm Sarah, and this is The Big Melt. Forests are incredible. And not just because they let you take social distancing to the next level. They're literally ecological wonders. They prevent soil erosion, they're home to thousands of different species, and of course, they absorb carbon to help cool the world down. Seriously, even an itty bitty tree that's like 25 centimeters around and two meters high can hold 10 kilograms of carbon. Super old trees that measure 48 meters high and four and a half meters around can hold 8,252 kilograms of carbon. That's an elephant and a half. I wonder how much carbon a whole forest could hold. It's like each forest is an army of giant leaf soldiers that suck up gases in the fight against climate change. Oh, that sounded a lot cooler in my head. Um, new subject. <laughs> oh, did you know that Canada has eight different forests? Mm-hmm. The Acadian, Montane, Deciduous, Columbia, Subalpine, Great Lakes slash St. Lawrence, and of course, the boreal. The boreal forest is the biggest one by far. It stretches all the way from the Yukon to Newfoundland, like this giant green backwards check mark. It accounts for 75% of Canada's woodlands and is made up of both younger and older growth trees, which are super important for us to conserve. Oh, um, we should do some definitions. I just looked these ones up. The main difference between older growth and younger growth forests is... Oh! I hope that was a branch and not me. Uh, if a podcaster falls in a forest and there's no one there to see it, did she really fall? <laughs> uh, let, let me stand. <clears throat> Speaking of which, that's the whole difference between older and younger forests. They're stands. A stand is basically a clustered community of trees usually made up of a dominant species and some other varieties. It's like a tree colony or neighborhood, 
and forests are made up of a whole bunch of them grouped together. The stands in older forests are, well, older, in a really special and kind of hard to define way, since forests themselves can be so different. Think about the enormous ancient trees of BC's coastal forests versus the itty-bitty scrubby trees that grow near the tundra. Both can be old growth despite the size difference. So older really means it has certain qualities of being old, but it may only be old compared to the forest stands around it, not like all forests everywhere. Make sense? Uh, maybe not. Let me try again. So older forests and the older stands that they're made of tend to have certain traits in common. Because they've developed over long periods of time relatively undisturbed, they've had more time for plants and critters to find them and make their homes there. Older stands can also have trees of varying ages and sizes that have reached full maturity, as well as lots of dead trees mixed in. Think of it like this. Older forests are like uh, Rome or Athens. Ancient cities made up of hodgepodge of neighborhoods where new, younger parts get built on top of and beside the old parts and all of it works together because it formed organically over a really long time. But like, with trees. Just like ancient cities, most older neighborhoods disappear over time and are modernized, leaving little pockets of old historic areas while the city itself thrives and grows bigger, newer, and younger. In places like the Boreal, where fire is the dominant driver of change, the vast majority of the forest is made up of young, thriving stands, while only small areas reach ages of more than 120 years. Those places are so cool. Younger growth forest stands, sometimes called second growth stands, are, well, you guessed it, younger. <laughs> and they develop in a wide variety of ways, sometimes after fires or pests or forestry. Depending on the type of forest, it can take anywhere from a few decades to over a hundred years to mature again. The process of regrowth, called reforestation, is a slow and delicate process that can happen naturally or with the help of people. When us humans get involved, it's called forest management. And it's super important to making sure that forests stay healthy and diverse as they regrow. Well, one of the reasons. There's also the protection of wetlands within forests to prevention of forest fires and preventing pests and foreign species from invading and killing trees, which Beachy Dubs releases a lot of carbon. Seriously, all that carbon that trees store, if they get killed by pests and then rot, it's all released back into the air. Ditto for forest fires. And then of course there's animal protection. The list just goes on and on. Luckily, it turns out that Canada is a world leader in independent forest certification, meaning we have lots of groups looking out for our woodlands and pushing forward forest-related science. Hmm, I wonder, you think my phone has service out here? I think I'm gonna try and call Darren Sleep at SFI. SFI stands for Sustainable Forestry Initiative. They're one of the nonprofit groups that set standards for forest management all over North America and even provides grants for all sorts of forest-centric research. I think if anyone could walk me through the intricacies of sustainable forest management, it'd be him. Hmm, maybe if I stand on top of this log? Uh, okay, maybe if I stick my arms out like an antenna? Bingo.
Hello? Hi, is this Darren from SFI? Uh, can you hear me? Absolutely. Oh, hi, uh, this is Sarah. Um, I'm doing a podcast about climate change and stuff, and uh, mind if I ask you a few questions about forest conservation? No problem. Awesome. So first off, what do you do at SFI? Uh, so SFI stands for the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, and at SFI, I'm kind of their science guy. I'm uh, a PhD researcher. I've spent a lot of my life uh, chasing animals through the forest and doing research on forests and forest dynamics. Uh, so I guess I'm kind of the science support for the whole organization. Oh, wow, that's awesome. So what is sustainable forest management? Sustainable forest management is really all about extracting from the forest the things we want, so products and wood and things like that, without compromising the forest of the future, so that 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, we still have a forest that we can go and play in, that we can still get products from, that animals can still live in, and we don't compromise that for future generations. That sounds amazing. So how do groups like SFI help prevent forest fires and pest invasions? Well, what SFI does in particular is we set a standard by which companies that are certified to SFI have to follow uh, various guidelines and rules so that when they're managing the forest, they think uh, to the future about things like how climate change might affect the forest, what might constitute a risk for natural disturbance like fire or pests, how to react when they see those things, when when they see an area that's particularly dry, how do they change their management plans to prevent fires, to reduce the risk of fire? And sometimes it's all about uh, actually changing the forest a little bit to help prevent those things. So if you see an area that's been infested by, by pests or bugs, you actually might harvest that or manage that piece to remove that source of bugs to the rest of the forest. Or you might use forest management to reduce fuel loads so they're less likely to burn in the future. Oh, wow. I never knew it's possible to manage a forest this way. That's super interesting. Okay, now here's my big question. What role do forests play in fighting climate change? Oh, that's probably the best thing that forests do is the fact that trees, as they grow, they suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. So as trees are growing, they're sucking carbon into them. They're releasing oxygen, which doesn't contribute to, to climate change. As the trees get older... Uh, they might drop some branches, and those branches fall to the ground and rot and become part of the soil, so they hold the carbon that way. Uh, and, and then again, as we harvest products, you know, we take solid wood out of the forest, and that wood becomes a product uh, as storing more while we regrow trees where we took that, that tree from. So it's, it's all about continuing that cycle of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, using some of it, and allowing some of it to, to build into the forest. Ah, so by taking wood products out of the forest and using it for, let's say, building materials, that wood can hold on to its stored carbon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Think of all that wood that's either in furniture or in the walls of a house or something like that, or even nowadays we're building skyscrapers with mass timber products. All that wood that's held in those products for years and years and years, think about the, the table that you maybe inherited from your great-grandmother. Uh, the whole time that product has been sitting in use, it holds onto its carbon and keeps it away from the atmosphere. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Now, can you explain a bit more about the SFI standards? Well, the first thing that we always ask is we, we want to make sure that companies that are harvesting for us 
aren't just thinking about tomorrow or the next week, but they're thinking long-term. So we, we require our companies, be they in the southern part of the United States or, or in the northern boreal forest, we require them to have a management plan that thinks long-term and considers all of the values across the forest, including biodiversity, uh, so all the animals and critters and, and plants that are living out there, as well as water quality, so we ensure that streams are protected and uh, and maintained so that you know runoff and, and dust and things doesn't fall into the into the water course, you know, messing with the fish. Uh, we ensure that forests that are rare forest types and stand types that are rare on the landscape get maintained and protected over the long term. Uh, so it's all about thinking big picture, both in terms of how long you're thinking about and the spatial extent you're thinking about. So we require our companies to think very progressively. But on top of that, we're always thinking about how a company can do a better job tomorrow than they did today. And the only way to really do that is to think about doing research. So we ask our what we call our certified organizations, the company that use our standard, we ask them to do research, active forest management research, so they better understand the effects they're having on the landscape and how they can get better over time. That's a, a unique thing to SFI is that, is that we, we require them to do research. And on top of that, SFI as an organization, we do research uh, that is specifically targeted at certain things that, that we know as a group the, the forest sector needs to think about uh, that are usually very large scale. SFI has about uh, 150 million hectares across North America. That's a massive footprint. And because we have so much space, when we think about research, we think about research at this massive scale uh, so we can, we can think about forest conservation uh, at this, you know, this very, very large extent. Wow, 150 million hectares? That's insane. Well, It's okay. crazy. When you're, that's a huge amount. I can't even imagine that. Um, when replanting trees, is there anything that can be done to improve the health of second growth stands? Absolutely. You know, when we think about planting a tree, we often think about uh, some guy with a shovel, you know, digs a little hole, sticks the tree in and, and, you know, steps on the root to make sure it's covered and walks away. But in fact, that's just the beginning. That's just the start of it. And realistically, it's not even just the start of it. But we'll, we'll go from there. We'll, you know, the tree gets planted. Uh, there's people who, uh, they're called silviculturalists that go out and they keep an eye on these planted stands over time. So they'll go out and they'll make sure they're still growing and they'll make sure they're not too dry and they're making sure that there's enough uh, layer. They'll look for infestations of bugs and things like that. And they'll, they'll just keep working at that stand, monitoring it. If it gets too thick because the stems are too close together, maybe they'll suggest people go in and thin it out a little bit. So they'll take a little brush saw and they'll walk through and they'll take out every second stem so the trees have more room to grow and more nutrients available. So they'll do all this work up until seven or eight years of growth that they know that the stand is now going to do well on its own and they don't have to come back anymore. So then fast forward, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, depending on where you are, you fast forward and that mature stand is now ready to be harvested. But as we harvest those trees, we also have people going out and collecting seed from that same place so that when they replant the stand, they're using the same genetic source, using the same uh, basically, the, the babies that, that they'll replant have come from the parent trees that are right there, uh, the same mix of trees. Uh, you know, we're trying to basically recreate, you know, what we took uh, before. So for every tree that gets harvested, rather, we plant about three trees. But then over time, we expect that not all those will mature. 
But in the end, we end up with a forest stand that is the same as what we took from the place. That's amazing. Three new trees for each one that gets harvested. I like those numbers. Oh, wait. Let's take a super quick break for this message. All right, we're back. So what's something you wish everyone knew about forests? You know, I, I think from my perspective, the forests are just an amazing place to be. I like to, uh, when I'm not, you know, thinking about forests and, you know, sitting in offices, you know, pushing keyboards and, and you know, giving talks to people about, about forests. In my spare time, I just like to be out in the forest, whether I'm downhill skiing, you know, somewhere or hiking or canoeing. Uh, I just love being in the forest. And it is, it's really a, a place that, that as much as some people who might be, you know, more comfortable in cities, it's really a, an incredible place that is growing and alive. Uh, and it's, from my perspective, there's no better place to be in the world. I totally agree. Wow, your work sounds so interesting and important. Thanks so much for talking to me. No problem at all. I enjoyed it a lot. Okay, bye. Bye. Wow, he knows so much about forests. He's like a tree whisperer. Speaking of which, that's kind of what this week's climate myth is all about. Only this one is less of a climate myth and more of a forest fable. Here it goes. Trees can talk to each other. Shh, let's listen. Hey dude, what's up? Not much, bruh, just standing with my stand. Okay, <laughs> not like that, but this myth is actually true. In a way. Wow, feels weird to get to say that finally. But yeah, this one's true. And no, the Lorax is not involved. Trees are incredibly complex organisms with vast reaching root structures. These root structures get colonized by a type of symbiotic fungi called mycorrhiza. Symbiotic means that these fungi work with the trees instead of damaging them. The mycorrhiza can branch out much, much further than the tree's roots and connect with other mycorrhizal colonies, forming a huge fungal network that spans hundreds of kilometers of interconnected trees. Kind of like a tree internet or shared nervous system through which chemical information and even resources can be sent. The oldest trees have the most intricate networks that connect to the largest number of other trees, and they can use these networks to transmit sugar molecules to younger saplings who might have less access to light, or to share information about threats like pests and droughts that tell other trees in the network to conserve water or produce enzymes to protect themselves. Even cooler, they can tell which tree the messages are being sent by and if they're related to them. There are even mother trees that send extra resources to their offspring to help them survive. No one knows exactly why the fungi transmit messages and fuel between trees when they could just absorb all the sugar themselves. And it's almost impossible to know just how complex these networks really are. But it is pretty clear that we still have a lot more to learn about the mysterious language of trees and their interconnected communities. Because, by the way, if a tree gets cut down in the forest, Turns out, all the other trees notice and talk about it. Oh, what's this? A message from Darren. It says, Hey Sarah, 
Cindy Chang is working on her PhD in forestry and she's involved in some really cool initiatives. She'd be great to talk to. And here's her contact info. Cool, let's give her a call. One sec, let me get back on my log with my arms out. Hello, Cindy speaking here. Hi Cindy, uh, can you hear me well? Yes, I can hear you very well. Okay, perfect. Um, this is Sarah. I'm working on an episode for my podcast, The Big Melt, and today I'm really getting into the topic of forestry. Now, I heard that you're working towards earning your PhD in forestry. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a second-year PhD student studying urban forestry at the Faculty of Forestry at the University of British Columbia. Oh, that's awesome. So what kind of stuff do you focus on in your studies? So I really interested in how we can integrate urban forests into urban planning and uh, climate action planning at the city level. So densification is now very well recognized as a way to help cities reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, which has a significant impact on mitigating climate change. However, rapid densification is one of the major drivers of tree loss in the city, which in turn leads to the loss of various benefits that urban forests provide. And I'm really keen to explore how we can avoid or at least minimize the trade-off between them. I hope to develop a decision support tool eventually for policymakers to understand when how, how much, and what type of urban forests can decrease urban heat and provide other climate benefits for urban neighborhoods. It sounds so interesting and so important. Now, I must say, I'm not sure what exactly an urban forest is. Could you explain the term? Um, there are different definitions of urban forests. So some people just consider urban forests being you know, trees um, in the city. Some even include other vegetations and other green infrastructures in the city. So the definition varies. And uh, in my study, I want to take a broader definition that covers not just trees, but um, other associated vegetation, even the grass or shrubs along the streets or in people's yard. I would like to see urban forests being the tree dominated ecosystem in the city area. Okay, I think I got it now. Thanks. So you talked about urban planning. How do cities plan to protect and develop urban forests? So this is actually my study area, meaning that I'm still studying and learning uh, what would be the best way to plan an urban forest. Um, it's still a challenge because as cities develop People moving to the city requiring more land for building infrastructures, and that leaves less space for urban trees. If we don't set an, a priority to protect forests and trees in the city area, it might be gone very soon without us even noticing. So it's really important in the planning of urban forests to identify the priority and uh, targets to know exactly what we want for our city and our communities. Many cities now have developed 
urban forest management plan or urban forest strategy to make sure that existing forests are nicely protected or less impacted by urbanization. But in terms of implementation, we really need not just policymakers' approval, but support from local communities. And that's why I want to see the combination of top-down and bottom-up approaches, working at the high-level policies and uh, working with local communities and youth to better prepare them for upcoming climate change impact. Right. I actually wanted to talk to you about the bottom-up approaches. My friends from SFI told me about the great work you've been doing with the Kelp Lab to engage communities and youth for collective climate action. Could you tell me more about that? Yes, definitely. It's a project called the Citizens Toolkit, a do-it-by-yourself toolkit for community members, teachers, youth, and practitioners to learn more about climate change at micro-neighborhood or community level. It includes various hands-on activities organized into five steps, from the first step talking to people about climate change all the way to taking actions on the ground. It acts people to really observe their surroundings, um, think about climate change and how climate change will impact their community and share their thoughts with friends and neighbors and come up with a plan to prepare themselves for climate change. That sounds really cool and I love the name Citizens Cool Kit. Thank you. Now for you living in Vancouver, has living near some of Canada's oldest rainforests influenced your perspective in the way people interact with nature? Yes, definitely. Um, I lived in Vancouver for 10 years, and um, although I have been living here for 10 years, I'm still amazed every day by the beautiful forest that's so close to the city area. And I'm also amazed by the love of people here towards nature and outdoor. Before I came to Canada, I really saw forests as a place to escape busy city life. But here you see a nice balance between city and nature where forests are nicely blended into urban area and people's lives. That sounds amazing. I really want to visit one day. Can you talk a bit more about how Vancouver protects its forests? So taking Vancouver as an example, Vancouver has developed an urban forest strategy and we have beautiful parks such as Stanley Park, which is preserved decades ago. Vancouver has set a tree planting goal uh, to plant 150,000 trees by 2020. And I believe the goal is reached now. And that really highlights the priority and uh, really brings people's attention to the caring and management of urban forests because now we have a goal to work on. So that's why there's a bunch of grassroots initiatives such as Cool Kids, um, at UBC to work with local communities to help them understand the city policies, the tree planting goals, and the values that urban forests can provide to us. Wow, it's so good to hear about these planting goals. Do you have other examples from around the globe of cities that have decided to develop the urban forests in them? There's another good example um, of planting and managing urban forests where I come from, China. So China has been developing very fast in the past few decades. And that, of course, brings a lot of concerns about protecting 
the natural environment. In fact, many of Chinese cities are experiencing various environmental issues. For example, Beijing is famous for its smog issue for a few years. And now the government is really paying a lot of attention to restore the nature in and surrounding the city. Beijing is an example, it's actually quite an extreme example among Chinese cities. So Beijing is planting millions of trees in last three years. And they have issues finding space to plant trees. But since the government support is so strong, they managed to find small piece of land here and there within the city and in suburb area to plant trees and uh, create parks for local residents. And that really helped resolve the air pollution issues in Beijing. That's incredible. Wow, I love that. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I think the Cool Kit Project sounds like an awesome way to get people involved and excited about green climate action. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And feel free to call me if you want to learn more about Cool Kits and Urban Forest. That's awesome. I definitely will. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. You know, I think it's kind of funny. Forests are these immensely complex living worlds. And yet, taking care of them and planting trees is probably the easiest, cheapest way to fight climate change. Like, there's research that shows that if we had a worldwide planting program, the newly planted trees could absorb two-thirds of all human-made emissions currently circulating. This research used satellite imaging to identify potential planting areas, which is mind-blowing. And the plan is totally doable. It'd cost pennies for each sapling, and they wouldn't even have to use land designated for crops. Also, there are tons of tree planting initiatives, like the one Cindy was talking about, already in the works. These initiatives can be scaled up, so the infrastructure is already in place. Even tiny proactive actions like planting a tree in your backyard can have a positive impact, especially if everyone gets involved. As it turns out, Canada still has 90% of the forests it had before Europeans showed up, so we have a lot of woodland to protect. And companies that harvest trees from publicly owned land have to return them to a healthy state. So deforestation affects less than 0.13% of our forests, which is pretty great. I highly recommend you get out there if you can and discover it for yourself. I think I'm gonna walk a bit longer to process everything I've learned. Later skaters. The Big Melt Podcast is brought to you by Earth Rangers and hosted by Sarah Marks. It is written by Lee Lawson, directed by Stefan Richter, and edited by Nitai Steinberg. Production assistance by Avneet Sandu. This episode was made with the help of our friends at SFI. To learn more about today's episode or leave us a message, go to bigmeltpodcast.com. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button and come on, show you care with five stars, please. Yeah.